my advice to every novice author out there who is female, do not feel guilty. You have got a right to do this. You are not wasting time. You just don't have a Y chromosome and feel that you're invincible. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name's Victoria Perman and I'm really thrilled to be sitting in for Pamela Cook on her Rights for Women podcast. She's busy off on deadline and I was really thrilled to be asked to step in to speak with Jackie French today. I write historical fiction for HarperCollins HQ. My new book, A Woman's Work, is coming out on April the 5th and it's about two women who went to the 1956 Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Contest. As you can imagine, historical fiction is right up my alley. So I was just thrilled to be able to have the chance to speak with Jackie, to pick her brains about how she does it. I look, Jackie French, who needs an introduction, but I will. She has written more than 200 books, some of which have sold millions of copies. She was awarded an AM for significant services to literature as an author of children's books and is a passionate advocate for improved youth literacy. She was the 2014-15 Australian Children's Laureate and the 2015 Senior Australian of the Year. She incredibly writes across genres for children, young adults, across non-fiction, fiction. It's a career worth studying for all writers out there. Jackie's joining us today to talk about her new historical fiction title, Becoming Mrs. Mulberry. Welcome so much, Jackie, to Rights for Women. Yavgi, thank you. And I cannot wait to read that book and I cannot wait to buy six copies. This is my Christmas present for just about every woman I know. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry, There's recipes I, in yeah. it from 1956. I've got to tell you, though, are oh, very interesting. Oh, divine. Wonderful. <laughs> Jackie, I'd love to talk about becoming Mrs. Albury first, and then I think I'd love to talk about your process, how you approach historical fiction, and we'll talk about craft because Pam has built up a real following for this podcast and they're writers. I've, I wondered okay. first if you could tell me, where did the idea for becoming Mrs. Mulberry come from? There are always at least half a dozen places where a book comes from. Anyone who says, when do you get your ideas or your inspiration, I think is kidding themselves. And so inspiration sheets through the universe. God is in your head. Oh, I've got the idea for a book. Like a light bulb. Bing. Yeah. If you've got an idea for a book, it is going to be a boring book. A book needs at least a thousand ideas and sources. And that's where Mrs. Mulberry came from. Agnes Glock is an impoverished medical student who gives up a career just before her final exams in Edinburgh to marry a Sheltrop man to save him from being sent to an asylum, which after World War I is um, horrendous, a place where he would be tied down in urine-soaked Basically, they just kept them confined. It was a nightmare. She sees no other way of doing it, but she sacrifices her medical career. That came from 
my uncle, Laurie, who was a student at Edinburgh, sent me lessons as a little girl. Grandpa also, when I was seven and I went to the Easter show, I bought a skeleton on a stick rather than a doll. And then I went back and complained because it wasn't anatomically correct. They not only had the number of ribs wrong, but they'd fused them, etc. And Uncle Laurie, who was a doctor, and my grandfather, who was a doctor and psychiatrist, decided that I needed to learn medicine. I was also, look, my childhood was a nightmare. And I think Grandpa rightly thought this would be a relief. So he had me all of the lecture notes and the exams sent for science from the University of Sydney, then medicine. So by the time I was 12, I'd actually done the entire science and medical one. Now, okay, that's not much use today. It's 50 years old and I never graduated. But it does mean I know a lot about medicine, pre-antibiotics. Grandpa graduated in 1916, I think. And he talked enormously about those early years. So it comes from there. It comes from Hildegard of Bingen because Agnes goes to create a shelter in the mountains of Australia for those too wounded in mind and body for society to look at. But we talk about second sight, but first sight is often the most important. The things that we refuse to look at, war veterans who come back with shattered bodies, shattered minds, and are, are shoved aside. I live in a place like that. My husband has Alzheimer's. I've had major surgery. In fact, one of my legs isn't really mine. But I believe utterly in Hildegard Bingen's Paredes, and that is that an environment of trees and nature and growing things heals us more than any medicine can do. And I have seen it over and over with people wounded in mind and body and they go back to the bush and they're healed. The dingo, there is a child, Agnes finds at a circus. They claim that she's been brought up by dingoes, but Agnes believes she has got a thyroid problem, which had only just been discovered, and believes she can heal her when... I was, actually, when I was seven, two, I was sent to Rabi Island for six months, which was a very isolated island then with no bridge. I think possibly, in, in retrospect, to actually get me away from what my mother had been doing to me. And I had a dingo uncle. He'd already adopted two kids on the island. And because I was with them, he adopted me too. We never fed him. We never patted him. He never came close to us. But he was always there. I would wake up in the morning, look out the window, and there he was, just this dark presence because he was a black dingo under a tree. He followed us everywhere. If an adult came by, he would stand hackles up, making a strange noise. And then if we weren't scared, he would lie down again. Once on the beach, we were swimming, and he started howling at us and just pacing the beach, howling and howling, and we came in to to see what the problem was. And that was when we saw the sharks. So it comes from many wow. places. It also comes from a crime, which I will not describe because the crime was real. There are people in their 70s and 80s or even 90s now who would have known about it and did 
nothing. And that, I think, is the heart of the book, where people know horrendous things have happened and are happening, not just to the men and women who came back from World War One, but, but also to children, to women, etc. And they see and they turn off their first sight, and on their second sight, they do not see them. To some extent, we are all living under a volcano, but we choose not to see it. There is so much we ignore. But also at the heart of it is something which probably goes through all of my book, and that is that love comes in many flavors and many kind. The Greeks had five kinds of love, and that's not nearly enough. It really isn't. By the way, one of their kinds of love, Amicus, was the love you have for an old friend who has shared many experiences with you. And yes, that is an extraordinarily powerful guy, as well as all of the other kinds. What a brilliant introduction to the book. Just sitting here absolutely gobsmacked about how you've taken all those pieces of your life as inspiration for Agnes Glock. Is it, do you think this is your most personal book? No. You do cherry pick bits from lives, bits from I, people we've met, don't we? Well, I've always known that I have cherry picked all the way through, even from my first book onwards. Material must come from somewhere. I get passionate about areas of history. I learn about them. Years later, I'll think, aha, okay, the book goes there. But no, I didn't realize until a very perceptive reviewer picked it up. This was about 12 years ago. And she said, all of Jackie's heroines, this was for books for young people, are either motherless or escaping abuse. And she said, of course, this gives them enormous freedom in the past to have all sorts of adventures that a normal, nice girl would not have. You don't put nice 14 year olds in World War II and also in World War I, World War II running the resistance, all sorts of other things. And I had not realized until then that subconsciously I was doing that. I was just writing heroines who, actually Agnes in this book has lost her mother. I only realized, talking to you now, when Agnes brings Douglas back to Australia, if her mother had been alive, everything would have been very different because mum would have actually come and went and, and et cetera, and been there as a guide, as someone to talk things through with, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. No matter what the scandal of the fabulously wealthy Agnes Mulberry, her mum would have been there. The dingo girl, interestingly, is not motherless. Girl who is the dingo girl, in fact, has got a mother substitute at the circus. Of course, has no idea that this child who dribbles, who's got a moon face, mm. who can't speak, who is becoming more and more lethargic and appears to be an idiot. Of course, this loving trapeze artist has no idea that this is an illness that a weekly injection of bovine thyroxine might actually cure so that almost miraculously, by the way, I should probably say my thyroid gland stopped working very quite quickly over a period of about a year. So I do know the magic. Okay, I'm now on very modern artificial thyroxine, not taken by injection from a cow and given to me with a very large needle once a week, for which I'm very grateful. But I do know how miraculous it was. I was massive. I was, look, about 120 kilos. 
And then everyone congratulated me on my diet for losing 40 kilos. No congratulations were necessary. I'd started taking thyroxine. In the book, it's miraculous. But so yes, the Dingo girl does have people who, who love her. And she also has her biological mother who loved her, but was taken by the circus basically to rescue her. But they could not rescue her mother. Yeah. And it strikes me as uh, there's that term, the great silence after World War One, and how people, the whole idea was to go home, forget about what happened, carry on, go back to your life. And for all the, for all the damaged people I- in your book, I thought that was so poignant. And of course, Douglas is one of the most damaged. And you mentioned that Agnes marries him to rescue him from an asylum. Those oh. scenes where he's, where she finds him locked up are just so poignant and awful. My, fa- my grandfather as a psychiatrist was Kevin Park. When he went to Kevin Park Mental Hospital, the conditions were like that. They were, the patients were strapped down to urine-soaked, mildewed, mattresses, there were rats running over them, there was no treatment. He fought for years and he got it. He started the first, or you'd call it a day release program, where people could go out, work, etc., or just go out and enjoy themselves for a day, but come back to the safety of the mental hospital where they could actually be mad. I and my mother, of course, grew up in mental hospitals. Hospital Chachi explains a lot about my mother. Every time I feel angry or bewildered, I remember that, as she once said to me, I never knew what normal was. Yes, the horror of that. But look, it wasn't just World War I. My father-in-law, if you're trying to do the maths, he was actually quite an old man when he married and had a child or two children. He never talked of it. He was a high-functioning alcoholic. He never, ever talked. He was at Gallipoli, then the Western Front. My grandmother's brother, I never met, and I never actually asked why, which says a lot. Every Tuesday, he again was World War II. Every Tuesday and Thursday, Grandma would go and stay with Great Aunt Dorothy so Great Aunt Dorothy could go out. Great Aunt Merv was kept in the bedroom upstairs. I still don't know what was wrong with him. I do know he was on the Burma Railway. I do not know what was wrong with Merv, whether it was mental or physical. I remember, though, as a three, seeing my best friend's father and screaming. I thought he was a redback spider. His face was had red stripes all over it. He walked like that. And I screamed and screamed, and my mother took me away and explained quietly. He'd been on the Burma Railway. He had been crucified for some infraction so that his arms and legs had been des- desiccated and his spine broken, which is why he walked like that. And the stripes, I thought, were a redback spider, were from being beaten with a cane across the face. And he, it, I even at three, I knew there was nothing I could do that would compensate for that man who had lost so much fighting for his country. But look, we do it with every war. We're doing it now to veterans from Afghanistan. Yeah. Every single war, every homeless person, every child who does not have a bed to sleep in tonight, we are closing our eyes to the problem. So writing about World War One, I'm writing about a problem that still exists. But again, I'm also writing about the cure. Agnes remembers 
her mother saying years before that you look for the crumbs when you suffer trauma, when you have got loss, when there is grief. You just look for crumbs of happiness. Just focus on those crumbs. But she said a thousand crumbs makes a cake. Then you have a life again and then you are happy. So it's about that. It's about gathering the crumbs together. But when the book opens, Agnes is leading what, in fact, everyone would think would be the most ambulance life. She is one of the three wealthiest women in Australia. She has got uncontrolled access to the funds. She lives in this paradise she has created with these wonderfully eccentric characters. Private, private. <laughs> for um, I was going to mention private, private. He appears okay. on page one. Oh, oh yes. He is a, an exoology professor who believes that Clothes are part of the evil of the world because they denote status. So he refuses, when he took off his uniform, he refused to put on any other clothes, except occasionally a blanket when it's cold at night. He has, he shares his or cottage on the estate with a wombat who has got a taste for chewing up silk knickers. And yes, the wombat, of course, is very much based on a real wombat too. So the book opens with private privates, privates and his wombat with well, um, silk knickers. <laughs> I thought you've mentioned Agnes starts off as a medical student. Her career is thwarted, like Mm. the careers of so many women of that era. Mm. But Mm. even though she doesn't, in the beginning, she's not a doctor. She has been a nurse during the war, but I think she helps heal. This is the beauty of her character. She helps heal people. Everyone she meets in that book, she touches with her goodness, I think. I think it's with her goodness, but also her belief as a doctor, after all, she gave up her career a few weeks before her final exams, and she hasn't done a residency. Her father was a doctor, her mentor, etc., the great friend of her father who has sent her to Edinburgh. The women that she has been with, they're all doctors. She has grown up with medicine. Those were the days when doctors did their rounds every day. And so the little girl, as I did with Grandpa and with Laurie sometimes, would go on their rounds with them and discuss the cases with them. Laurie would still ring me up to discuss diagnoses, particularly as I was far enough away not to know the patients he was talking about. So Agnes has had a life, she's probably got more medical, in fact she has, got more medical experience than the local doctor. Of course, Um, given her nursing experience during the war. Yeah, the nursing experience, the theoretical experience, her friends have kept on giving her the British Medical Journal, etc. Whereas most doctors then, and for that matter now, then proper keeping up with the latest things. So she is incredibly medically savvy, but in terms of the psychiatric help that she gives, she's going back to medieval abbess Hildegard of Bingen, who I admire for many reasons, but her talking about mentally and physically, you have to heal people mentally as well as physically. People don't get well in hospitals. They get well after they go home and there is love and quiet and no machines going beep at two o'clock and people trying to take your blood pressure. But particularly, they get well in the bush. It's why before antibiotics, so many sanitariums and nursing homes, in fact, almost all of them were actually set in bushland. Doctors and nurses and people involved in the healing you give people a fresh air, give them sunlight, give them trees, give them peace, give them beauty, give them delicious things to eat and drink. And look, there is a good chance that alone is actually going to heal them. The 
old-fashioned doctor's prescription for very well-off women was six months in it. Take a boat to Italy. And I'm oh, sounds oh, fantastic to me. If only I would go to a doctor today and instead of antibiotics for bronchitis, they would say, oh, well, sorry, you need to take six months staying on the coast of Italy in a lovely villa and have a good glass of sherry three times a day and plenty of champagne, which was a common doctor's prescription. And I'm... I vote for the return of that (laughs) treatment. But we could talk about this book all for hours. I really, I loved it. But I'm hoping that the authors and prospective authors who are listening Mm. can hear from Jackie that the idea is not just one bolt of lightning, as she said at the beginning. It's like a, I would describe it as like a soup and you put all the, a recipe, you put all the ingredients together and there's a big picture message you might want to convey, but then there are little snippets of Herbs and spices. Like a soup or even like a cake. You've got the ingredients all come from me. But once you've got them, they actually do their own thing. I always write the ending first because you can't write the ending without actually knowing what am I writing about? Who am I writing about? Now, I almost invariably change the ending. And that's because somewhere... In writing the book, you actually realize, no, they wouldn't have done this. This is the person I have created, but having created them, they would do this, this, and no, this wouldn't have happened. Something else is actually going to happen. To be a writer, I think you not only need to have those thousand ideas coming together in what I call a ping moment, where the book begins, you have to continue creating. You actually have to believe in your world. Before I had surgery, oh, five years ago now, I'm allergic to opioids. In fact, I just stopped breathing. I'm dead. I knew I had to face having most of my left leg removed without pain relief. So I went to a pain therapist who actually hypnotizes patients. In fact, she does it for people who are addicted to opioids. I have the opposite problem. I can't take opioids. And she tried to, she did hypnotize me. And afterwards, I said, look, thank you, but it worked. And I'm sure if we worked on this, it'd be deeper. But when I write a book, I'm much further away than I was in the, than I was in the place that you were taking me. She was taking me to a lovely pool, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going down on a lift. When I write a book, I'm there. I'm not conscious of time. I'm not conscious of anything. I am in that world. And I think that is one of the tests for a reader. When you are writing that book, are you there? Are you there with so much depth you don't feel the pain? That first night after the surgery when I couldn't sleep, I actually composed, actually it was a musical comedy about Mary McKillop and two of her nuns as a TV series. Now, the world is not ready for a musical comedy about Mary McKillop, who, by the way, I absolutely revere for many reasons. This was a very respectful musical comedy, really showing the superb nature of the old but the world is not ready for it. But composing that, that's how I survived this extraordinary pain, night after night, day after day. When I write, I'm not conscious of pain. If someone comes in, I often give a scream because I'm completely unaware of everything except the world I'm in. The other way book is working, it's from Patrick White. He said that he knew it was working if he was crying. Now, I find the same. That's not because it's sad. Often I think 
sad endings are a cheat's way of doing it. Oh, I feel so depressed. I feel like, cutting my wrist. It must be a brilliant It's a complete cheat. If you can give the reader tears of joy, tears of laughter, tears of just transcendence, because they're no longer in the boring world of today, but they are in the world you have created. If you can do that and do it to yourself, and if you are crying and find you've got tears in your eyes, then it's working. Keep going. And particularly for any female writer out there, I've now mentored many authors, invariably, excuse my being sexist, the men quite confidently are writing their first books. The women invariably are feeling guilty about wasting the time on something which might be published. So my advice to every novice author out there who is female, do not feel guilty. You have got a right to do this. You are not wasting time. You just don't have a Y chromosome and feel that you're invincible and that, yes, we are. Even today, as women, we feel guilty if there is something undone, that we've got the ironing, we've got the kids, we've got an ill deep relative who needs looking after, or even we should be doing something more for our day job. Please do not feel guilty. If you want to be a writer so desperately you are writing your book, you are a writer. The book you are writing may not be good enough to be published, but that's up to you. Trash is your friend. Keep writing, keep trashing. I think probably almost every word except a, the, of, and but, and seems in my books is tossed out. In fact, those words are often tossed out, but they're replaced by the same ones. I, I'm in awe of authors before word processing. I wrote my first two books on a very old typewriter I'd found at the dump, but having access to a computer where you write in fact, that's what's how I write now. Every morning, I think of the scene I am going to write or how I need to rewrite yesterday's scene because I've actually got it wrong. I never sit down and think, I'm going to write a 140,000-word book because I would be terrified. I could not do it. Instead, I just write a scene. Every day when I walk among the trees, like Hildegard of Biggin suggested, I'm thinking of nothing except the world around me. And my subconscious glides out this idea or these ideas, all this, this realization, no, it would not have been like this. Or by the way, you've forgotten to, you've introduced this fascinating character in chapter two and he has vanished. Where has he gone to? What has happened? Put him back in again. You've missed this wonderful chance for Hilbert. That's just what I do. I work out the scene. I write the scene. I can cope with writing a scene. Often, of course, that scene leads to another and another. And I've been writing for eight hours straight and my hands hurt and I'm giddy from not eating and I have to force myself to stop. I will write till 1 or one thirty in the morning thinking it's still 9 or 10 o'clock at night because I've lost myself in the book. But now you've got access to a computer. Just write what is vivid. Don't think you have to start at the beginning. That's the hardest place to begin. You've only got seven seconds to capture the reader. That is, 
including the editor who's going to actually accept your book. Look at someone in a bookstore, seven seconds leafing through your book. Are they going to pick it up? You've got seven seconds. So what this really is terrifying. Unless you've got the beginning, don't think you need to start there. Write the scene that is vivid. Write another scene and another. And the time will come. I usually find it's after three or four days when suddenly those scenes are coming together. But sometimes it can be 10 days or even longer. And I realized, okay, this is the book. And I start writing the connections. And at that stage, I know the place, I know the people, I know the themes. It is real. I am there. And it's only then I write chapter one. That's fascinating to me because my process is more linear, although I'm a total pantser, but mm. I have worked that way in the past and I've found the ed- my, my own editing from so mm. first to second draft is becomes really complex and I resent oh. the fact that I did it that way. So yeah. <laughs> because I then have to, all those tiny connections between scenes and narrative art, I find that that work really frustrating. For you, that's obviously your natural flow. You'll write the vivid scenes and then find the links to them. And you said you write the end up front, almost. Yes. But as I said, I almost never stick to that ending. I write the ending because if I can write the ending, I know I'm ready to start writing the book. If you can't write the ending, you are not ready yet. Keep thinking, keep daydreaming. Keep pondering, keep researching. I don't write it thinking this is necessarily what the ending will be. But when I said I wrote connections, it's more that having written the vivid bits, the bits I actually know about this book and I'm sure of, that means it's easier to write the other bits, the connecting bits. It's just a way of, yes, I'm skydiving into that world, into it, so it surrounds you. But I was probably wrong to say it's the connecting bits. I write the bits that I know about that world, those characters, those themes, and that makes it far easier. But before I start, I had portraits it out like that. I, I do know really where we're going, what we're doing, etc. But it never stays like that. I never stick to the recipe. If you come to think of it, I don't stick to recipes and cakes or biscuits or casserole. You always change it halfway through and not always because you realize you've run out of time. That P-Y-M-E, not time. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask you about, because I write historical fiction too, I'm very conscious of the fact that I need to make it as real as I can. Don't like diverging from facts as I have, as I can, as much as I can research them. I've read a brilliant book recently called The Wrath to Come, and it's up here on my shelf by Sarah Churchwell. And it's about how the movie Gone with the Wind is now how people think the Civil War actually happened. So yes. they think the fiction is the truth rather than the history being the truth. Oh, you've told a very sore spot there. Most of my books, in fact, probably all of my books, part of the core of them is because it is about the history of women that we have either forgotten or was deliberately erased. A book of mine coming out next year is about a female signaller on the front lines, 1917, the Battle of Cambrai in World War One. At the end of World War One, the army had 3,600 and more files about the women who fought on the front line for the British army. They burnt all but six of them. I only came across 
them in a question asked in Parliament in the 1920s. Why were these women who'd been binded, gassed, gossed, gims, etc., why weren't they getting pensions like the men? And the answer was, oh, because they're employed by the post office. In 1916, when 1914 and 15, most male post office workers, the telegraphists, joined the post office rifles and they were not decimated. Nearly all of them were killed as just as battle fodder. And so in 1916, the army suddenly realized they were reliant on Morse COVID and they didn't have any men to do it. And they also discovered the women were on average three times faster than any man. And they started recruiting women. They had to be able to ride, shoot, share tents or dugouts with men, go through a whole lot of physical things. Their conditions were appalling. The men were at the front for maybe six weeks or three months. The women served every day of the year with no time off, a minimum shift of 12 hours on, but often 18 hours and sometimes double shifts of 36 hours. Quite often descriptions of them just simply falling over with exhaustion and the woman next to them would actually take over both roles, which is just an incredibly extraordinary physical feat. These records were gone, however, they weren't. The Irish Postal Workers Union, because some Irish postal workers had enlisted, had fought for the rights of these women to give them actually better pay, some time off, etc., at least a room where they could relax, a whole range of other things. And the Irish Postal Workers Union, when the order came to get rid of all of the files, in fact, I don't know what they actually did say, but I probably think it was actually something quite rude, and they're there in the Irish Postal Workers' Archives. Oh, that is Uh, outstanding. It was found by the American historian Barbara Walsh, who does a lot of work about Irish and Scottish women's history, which again has been deliberately hidden and destroyed. And so also, of course, in Mrs. Mulberry, we've got the struggle of women doctors in history books about women in medicine, You'll see that, oh, yeah, look, in Australia, in the 1890s, yes, women could do medicine. Look, that's all very well. But you need to do a year of residency in a hospital before you can have a license to practice. And hospitals would not take them to give them the residency. And that is why Agnes goes to Edinburgh. Edinburgh was the only place in the world where women had founded a hospital with the exact aim of providing a place where women could do their residencies. So she could not only do her degree there, she could have a residency. Once she had got that in Britain, she was licensed to practice anywhere in the British Empire. And most of the women would go off to practice in in other countries. But she could come back and practice in Australia. Because the army, the Australian army didn't want those women. They were Australian women doctors were not welcome in World War One, from my memory. No, nor were they in Britain. However, a lot of the women then went to work for the French army. Hmm. So you did have, and again, this has been hidden. You had Australian women doctors working and women surgeons working side by side with the Australian ones and talking to, because grandpa then volunteered after he. His entire year volunteered for World War One and sailed for Europe. So I had all of the stories about doctors in World War One. There were a straight was at least one Australian women doctor 
working side by side as a surgeon with the men. But she was, she was an officer in the French army. Um, the Belgians too, and the Serbs, and in fact, just about everyone except the Brits, because yeah, remember, yeah. we're under the control of Britain then. Yeah. So just about everyone except the Brits accepted these incredibly well-educated women, because after all, you didn't go through all of that back then if you weren't an extraordinary woman. The exams for the early women doctors, the male students formed cordons like this, so they couldn't get in to do the exams. They pelted them with dog excrement and other excrement, etc. But the women literally held the line arm in arm. They would not leave. Until finally, a sympathetic male student, I think, opened a window around the side, just opened the door a crack, whispered to them, and the women just quickly raced around the side, got in the window, and it was shut, and they did their exams. After that incident, however, they did provoke a lot of admiration and, I think, shame in the men who did it, realizing what they'd done. Rightly. I, when Agnes, in her first two years, faces that kind of discrimination, being described as a whore being pelted with them. But by the time the book opens, most of the medical students have joined the army. The university is desperate for the fees, though, of course, they charge the women a double fee to do medicine rather than the man. And she can do the rest of her degree quite easily. And also even volunteering at a VD clinic and as a VA, a nurse's assistant as well in, in her spare time. So World War I changed it. A lot of women got their experience in hospitals in World War I and their residency. But of course, for at least 10 years afterwards, just about, in fact, possibly every hospital in Australia passed their board, passed a regula regulation saying that the women must give up their jobs for returned servicemen. The jobs had to be kept for men. So often they would go to places like Ontario, Hong Kong, practiced in Africa, New Guinea, until things changed and they could come back again. What extraordinary women. And it's an extraordinary book, Becoming Mrs. Mulberry. Thank you so much, Jackie, for your insights into your process, into your, your storytelling. It's been wonderful and very inspiring to me. I know it's been inspiring to any writer listening to. Good luck with the book. It's out now, Becoming Mrs. Mulberry. Thank you so much, Jackie. Oh, pleasure. And look, may I just have a final word to oh, Elise? Yes, look, to any would-be writer. I was told all through my youth that you could not make a living being a writer. I was wasting my time. I only sent a book away because I was a single parent and I desperately needed the money. If you love writing enough to actually write that book, you are already a writer. Just keep writing until that first is so good that everyone has to keep turning the pages, but never, ever think that you are not a writer. What a beautiful place to end that. Amazing. <laughs> anyway, oh. you're great to talk to you and thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. 
You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. Thank you.